0: If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we will consider for a final time this profound, yet at the same time succinct statement about the nature of Christ. It is a a fitting word of confession to consider during the Christmas season. Provides us with some of the essential elements of what it is what it means to to talk about uh, Christ's birth and why it is significant that we understand Him in the fullness of divinity, yet at the same time in the fullness of humanity. Philippians chapter 2, we'll once again read all of these verses, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, One of the important responsibilities of a pastor, I am convinced this is the case, especially during the Christmas season, one of our important responsibilities is to point out how people get the Christmas story wrong. We actually revel in it, to be be quite honest, we love to take the opportunity to kind of pop a little bit of the Christmas balloon, all right? We we like to take an opportunity to take a shot here and there, the ways in which we get the story wrong. So, there there are some favorite points that we like to bring up. For example, and and I've mentioned this one before, you will search high and low to find any reference in the Bible to an innkeeper. Now, now I know what you may say. Well, there was an inn, and there was no room for the inn. So surely there was somebody who told them there was no room. Well, yes, to be sure. But the Bible never tells us about an innkeeper, especially not one who's who's so hard-hearted as to turn away a pregnant teenager, somebody who is presented in so many ways as being this calloused and uncaring individual. There's nothing in the Bible about that. All right, so that's one. Another one... There's no donkey in the Christmas story. I, I know. What? But it's on my table in the nativity. What do you mean there's no donkey? I'm not saying there wasn't one. I just mean in the Bible. There's not one mentioned. There's no donkey. Now, again, pregnant teenager, did she probably ride something? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it makes sense, but that's why we say it. Not because it's in the Bible. All right. So those are just a few, but there is far and away one point of the story that we bring up more than anything else. We pick on it right from the beginning. In fact, it's not unusual for me at some point in the Christmas season to pick on this, to find one of you individuals who perhaps has some snarkiness like your pastor, actually then does something about it, and that is, the wise men were not at the stable. And so there have been years when I've walked in on a Sunday morning and the wise men are over here, right on the Oregon side, because I've said they weren't there. No, no, in fact, if you read Matthew's Gospel, you'll find some very specific details. One, it says that they go to a house. Two, there's a very specific word that is used. It says that they, and it's translated in a variety of ways, but kind of meaning... The same thing, they visit and give gifts to the young child. Greek has more than one word for a child, just like we do. We might talk about an infant. If I describe your baby as an infant or as a toddler, am I describing the same age child? No. That's Matthew's word for toddler. All right, so so we know that the wise men were not there on the night of his birth. However... They did see a star on the night of his birth. And though it took a couple of years for them to get to point A to point B, these men living in a far-off country, they, they nonetheless made their way to visit this newborn king. You know, the wise men are an interesting part of the story. And and not because they kind of get lumped in with the others. They're an interesting part of the story, because if you think about it just in its most practical sense, think about Matthew being the first gospel. So if you'd never read the New Testament, and the first time you pick up a New Testament, the first book you're going to read is you're going to read the book of Matthew. The first chapter you're going to read in the first book of the New Testament is going to be a genealogy. The second story you're going to read in the New Testament is about an angel visiting Joseph, telling him not to divorce his, his fiance, not to put her away, but instead move forward. This, this is the Son of God. And then it gives just one quick statement about the birth of Jesus. The third passage, the third story in the first book of the New Testament is about some pagans who come visit him. It's really pretty amazing if you think about it. Again, if you knew nothing about the story, you're not, you're not going to hear about shepherds. You're not going to know anything. About, if, if your first exposure is only the Gospel of Matthew, you, you've never picked up a Bible, you're not going to know anything about Elizabeth. You're not going to know anything about John. You're not going to know anything about Mary. You would have never read the Magnificat. None of this would be known to you. There'd be no shepherds tending their flock at night. None of that the first story you would encounter after the birth of Christ is the wise men. Why would that be the case? Well, there's a number of reasons why their visit is significant. One, Matthew is very much concerned with making sure the reader understands Jesus Christ is King. And so, right from the beginning, we have this story that identifies men, men who were not themselves the kings of the country, but nonetheless treated in a way that would have been similar to royalty. These, these were knowledgeable men. These, these were philosophers, political influencers, religious leaders. These men were men of wealth and power. Uh, So much so, when they descend on Jerusalem, it creates quite the kerfuffle, all right? And Herod is very concerned because there is this group of men, which, by the way, the Bible never identifies as being three. Oh, yeah, there's three gifts. No, I get it. But it never says there were three wise men. In fact, by all accounts, there were hundreds of people who showed up because each of them would have had an entourage, This was a significant moment, because it is identifying for the reader, we are to understand that right at the beginning of the life of this child, you have Gentiles coming from a far-off country, and the text is very specific. They give him gifts, and then it says, and they bow down and worship him as king. So right off the bat, we are given this picture of the importance of this child. This child is not just some kind of regional, localized, interesting, religious rabbi. No, right off the bat, the Gospels are telling us there is something so unique about this child that he fulfills a position, not just, again, some local religious leader but of one of divine power and glory and exaltation. I, I bring up the wise men because I think in a lot of ways they illustrate the final piece of Philippians chapter 2. They, 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 they kind of bring out this, this part of the story and that it's, it's, it's more than just a sweet nostalgic story about a baby in a cradle and, you know, mom and dad and the journey on, on that dark you know, night, and, and all, all that goes in, you know, with our views of that first Christmas story, these men showing up demonstrate this is more than just a child. And this is more, again, than even just the king of the Jews. This is one who demonstrates a type of authority that goes to the ends of the earth. It extends beyond religious and national contexts. And as we finish up Philippians chapter 2... Paul leaves then no doubt on exactly how we should understand the nature of Jesus Christ. And so, this morning, we're going to finish up. We're still looking at, again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You've got notes you're going to be able to fill in this morning. Keeping in mind that as we have looked at this passage, our focus has been twofold. One, looking at what it tells us about who Jesus is, his nature connecting that then with the significance of the Christmas season. But then also recognizing that Paul's purpose here is to give us an example. Jesus stands as an example for the church in Philippi and then for us of what it looks like to serve. What it looks like to not put yourself at the center of all things, but instead to make sure you are a servant to those around you. Not not to look out for your own well-being, but the well-being of others. This is what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And to motivate this, he says, have the mind in you that was also in Christ. And so, in, in looking at kind of what the fundamental point has been as we have studied Philippians chapter 2, Paul uses the, the, this, this incarnation of Christ as the ultimate example of humility and selflessness. And so, as we have been celebrating this, looking at the Christmas season and what it tells us about Jesus, we've also been then considering the profound theology surrounding Jesus' birth that also exhorts us to Christlikeness. likeness Four theological emphases in this passage. All right? Number one, and we've already looked at this one. There's three we've already looked at. The condescension of the Son of God. So we noted that language of Him coming down. He was in the form of God, which doesn't mean He kind of looked like a. He didn't resemble God. He was, in all that is true of divinity, Jesus possessed. In, in always, the fullness of divinity resided in Him. So He condescended. He had to come down. From that, not that, he, not that He gave up His divinity, but instead condescended, came down, and instead did not cling to the rights and privileges that come with His divinity. And then we looked at number two, and that is the incarnation of the Son of God. And so, so not only did He come down, but then He took on human flesh. And so just as He was God, a very God, He was also man, a very man. He became in the fullness that which is true of humanity. This is the important part to remember about the nature of Christ. He's he's in the fullness God, and He is in the fullness man. But it didn't stop there. We looked at the third principle, and this was last week, and that is the crucifixion of the Son of God. So thinking about this passage that we just read, you can definitely see the digression. You you, you see this, this, this... ever-lowering kind of, of, of sensation. You're coming down one step further, then down one step further. So the one who was God, taking on human flesh, but not just any kind of human flesh, taking on that which would be that of a slave, but not just taking on that which was of a slave, but then also to the point of death. And not just any kind of death. He didn't die a, a, a noble death, a warrior in battle. It, it, was, it was not a, a long life full of good works, and he died of old age. He was crucified on a tree. And as far as the text is concerned, and really even in the minds of, of people of the day, that's as low as it gets. It was as humiliating a way as you could have executed somebody. This, this identified you as the lowest of the low. If you were crucified. And so this is, this is where we found ourselves in looking last week at the nature of the crucifixion of Christ, the importance of recognizing his full humanity and full divinity. We dealt with the question, so how how do you kill God? The reason why this principle theology is so important is because it demonstrates to us how it's possible that God could pay the price for our sin. He could at, at the same time be God and yet also die in our place. Only the Incarnation explains this. Only the fullness of Incarnation explains this. And if we stop there, if it stopped at verse 8, if John's Gospel ended at chapter 19, what's the point? I mean, if, if we only have these first three points, I mean, as good and as great and as profound as they are, if there's not a fourth and final point added to it, if, if there's not then another step in this process, then as they would say, all is for naught. It doesn't matter. Yes, it would have been a great example of somebody sacrificing himself, but it would also just have been a tragic example of some great noble person dying. Now, there's a fourth theological reality that really then drives all of this home, demonstrates why... All of this matters, and that is, if you want to fill in a note, you know, blank here, here you go. And that would be the exaltation of the Son of God. The exaltation of the Son of God. And Paul, Paul's going to begin this with, with an important word in verse 9. So, so you know, verses 6, 7, and 8 had this digression, digression, digression. And then verse 9, everything changes. The story changes. In fact, it takes an abrupt change. And, and we are shot from the depths of crucifixion to the heights of exaltation. And we know something's coming because he begins with the word, therefore. And so he's about to then make a point based on what he's just said. Because of what has come in verses 6 through 8, then what he's about to say is the direct result... Of that. These these go hand in hand. Because he did not cling to those rights and privileges, because he, he, he became incarnate, God in the flesh, and became a servant and died on the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. So again, we go from the depths to the heights. And now, Paul is going to identify for us what what I think are three features of this exaltation. Again, a few more notes that you can fill in as we wrap this up this morning. Three important elements of how the ways in which Jesus is exalted. Three features of it. Number one, he is exalted to an exalted position. His exaltation involves an exalted position. So notice again that next phrase, verse 9. Therefore, God also has exalted highly exalted him. Now, this is Paul at his best, by the way. When I say Paul at his best, Paul doing what Paul does on a number of occasions, and that is making up words. Uh, It it goes underappreciated, but there's a number of words in the New Testament in Paul's letters that he clearly makes up. And by making up, what I mean is he takes two Greek words and he smooshes them together. That's the formal grammatical way you describe this, all right? Um, I've had the class. So you smoosh them together and you get the words. It's a way for Paul to say what Greek didn't say naturally. It's it's just kind of a way for him to, to put a punctuation point on important theological principles. So the English translation has two words, highly exalted. That's one Greek word. And, and it's it's taken by Paul taking one word and adding a word onto it, and that word that he adds onto it is a word that would mean super. It it, it speaks a, of, of an increased elevation. In other words, to say he's highly exalted is to say he's super exalted. It's like Paul didn't have a strong enough word, and so he makes one up. It I guess it just sounds more elegant than saying really, really exalted. Like exalted beyond what you normally associate with exalted, it's above and beyond that. It's a way of identifying what God has done is elevating Christ to a position that He occupies all unto Himself. Super exalted. By the way, He does something similar, just as another example. Remember in Romans chapter 8, where He says we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us? That word, more than conquerors, It's a made-up word. What I mean by made-up, Paul smooshed words together. That's what he did. So we're super conquerors. We're overabundant conquerors. We don't just barely win. It's a rout. It's a shutout, all right? And and so that's the same kind of language he's using here to try and identify the nature in which Christ has been exalted. It's not like he got a promotion. It's not like, you know, at a job, even being promoted to head of the company, being being promoted to, to, to... getting being promoted to general that that's not what this is this this is going above and beyond so that there's no other category you could possibly put him in super exalted god has highly exalted him above and beyond anything else anyone else now, to, to maybe even add a bit more clarity on the term, the language also means it just not just exalted, but has raised up, elevated. Now, there's some literal ways in which this applies. I think when Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Included in this are some very real and literal things that happened. His resurrection. That, that's why I say if we end at verse 8, then all this is for naught. I mean, it doesn't, none of it matters. If Jesus is still dead, what are you doing here? Right? I'm not going to be here. If Jesus is still dead, I'm not here. I'll tell you that. The reason why this matters, the reason why we do what we do, the reason why we celebrate and worship as we do, is because He has been raised up. Jesus did not remain dead. God Raised him from the dead. That's part of his exaltation. Brought out of the grave. And 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 I know in a modern and sophisticated world, this is hard for a lot of the intellectual elites to believe, but I believe he was literally, physically, bodily resurrected from the dead. It's not mystical, it's not spiritual, it's not symbolic. He was dead. And then he wasn't. But that exaltation wasn't just the resurrection. Because a few weeks later, what else happens? As he finishes his time on earth, the Bible says, it tells us in the book of Acts, as he gives his final instruction, it says that that he flies up into the sky, he ascends. I mean, you want to talk about an image of exaltation, there you go. It isn't just that He's raised from the dead, He then ascends back up into glory, and they see Him, they watch Him go up into the clouds, where He went after that. How long did it take? I don't know, the Bible didn't say, but it does say He ascended, and the implication then being, He ascended then and took up the position at the right hand of the throne of God. So think about that. Think about how this thing ends versus how it began. It begins with two know-nothing people in some podunk little town and the baby's first visited by a bunch of dirty shepherds. When I say dirty, I mean unclean. There was only one group of people lower than shepherds, and that was lepers. Did you know that? They were, they were consider, the only group considered more unclean <laughs> were lepers. Shepherds. This is who visited him at first. Let me ask you this, though, when we come to this part, when we come to His exaltation, not His humility, not His condescension, not His incarnation or crucifixion, when we come to His exaltation, answer me this, who was there to let Him out of the grave? Did any human do this? Mary and Joseph there to help Him out? When the ladies got there, they were figuring out how to roll the stone away, what did they find out? It was already moved. In other words, there was no man involved in this. There were men involved in the first one. There was a man and woman involved in the first one. There were shepherds who came, all right? We know they were involved, but at this one, no. This was the power of God raising him from the dead. What about the ascension? Did his disciples give him a boost? Did they do this for him, all right? And Jesus put his foot there and kind of give him a little bit of a heft so that he could, you know, start the process of floating up into the sky? Nope, he just ascended. In other words, the way he ended is not the way that he began. Now, this is important because the because the angels when when he ascends there's an angel who tells the disciples why are you standing there staring up into heaven because the way that you saw him leave is the way you will see him return exaltation this is what it means this by the way does not mean that Jesus gave up being divine and then God reconstituted his divinity that's not what this means. When it says he was highly exalted, it doesn't mean that God then made him more divine than he was before. Instead, this is speaking of his position. It is speaking of now as he functions. The Son of God... Now, this is really important, though it, it may be a little bit mind-blowing of a sort, all right? But this, this, is, this is absolutely, though, what, what Scripture teaches. The Son of God takes on a unique and exalted function after he completes his work of crucifixion, resurrection, and then ascension. The Bible says, and this is part of him being highly exalted, now he functions as our great high priest. He didn't function that way before. The Son of God in eternity past did not function in that way. He does now. The Son of God was not the resurrected God-man in eternity past. He is now. And when He comes again, how will we see Him? We will see Him as God in the flesh. The fullness of divinity, resurrected man, coming in glory and power. This, by the way, is not new or unique or novel to the Apostle Paul, right off the bat. The church's first sermon... Peter speaking at Pentecost says this, Acts chapter 2, verses 23, uh, verses uh, 33 through 36. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, And this is a couple of chapters later, Acts chapter 5, before the Sanhedrin. The same guy who was denying Jesus to some little slave girl out in a courtyard, standing before the most, most powerful men in the Jewish nation, says this, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to His right hand to be prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins." He has an exalted position, he's been highly exalted, as as now the resurrected God-man, the better Adam, a great high priest. There's a second, though, feature here. It's not just that he has an exalted position, he's also given a preeminent name. He's given a preeminent name. This is as familiar a part of this passage as anything, right? So he says in verse 9, Therefore God God also has highly exalted him, so that's one thing, but then we have an and, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I've got a question then. And this may seem obvious to you. But perhaps, by the way, I'm setting it up, you may realize, oh, maybe there's something else going on here. What's the name that He has been given. Now, our gut reaction is to say, Jesus. That's what it says, right? At least that's what it sounds like. Therefore God has also highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus. Now, that, that's not to say that, this, that the name Jesus is not a, a powerful, significant name. To be sure it is, all right? So I, I'm not making light of the name Jesus. But consider this, when he says name, he, he doesn't really have in mind here like the, the technical, legal way you might refer to somebody else. Like somebody's first and last name. Instead, I would contend, by the way, I'm not making this up. This is not novel, all right? This is not new. This is not me. His, God gave him some you know message um, after having too much christmas chocolate all right this, so this is this is well attested okay so i'm not i'm not out of bounds here the the language of giving him the name the name of jesus speaks to his title the position that he occupies again you know our natural reaction to say well the name is jesus and in fact you might even say i mean the christmas story that's a big part of the christmas story right Both Joseph and Mary are told, it's going to be a baby born, you're going to name him Jesus. And that was significant. They were going to name him a family name. They were going to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. So, just just a couple of ideas here that maybe suggest that's not really the name that he has in mind. First thing I would point out, is Jesus given the name Jesus after he's resurrected or before? I, before, yes. Some of you hesitate because you think, he's trying to get me, all right? I know that's what he's trying to do. It's the day after Christmas. All right, he's already said he likes to pick on us. So, no, no, that's, no. Was he already given the name Jesus before he was exalted? Yes. At his birth, right? I mean, that was the name that he was given. He was told. So, so the name Jesus, notice how the verse says, therefore he, he's been highly exalted and was given the name that is above every name. Well, if it's, if it's Jesus, that's kind of strange, because he's always been called Jesus. So that's one thing. He was, he was named Jesus at his birth. This was not a name bestowed upon him once he was resurrected. And then how about this? Is the name Jesus novel? Is it new? Well, no. And in fact, it is the New Testament version of Joshua. It's the same name. J- Joshua, right? You know, the, the, the protege, the second in command of Moses, and the one who takes them into the promised land, his name means God saves. Joshua is just... that that is an Old Testament Hebrew version of the name Jesus. So it's not all that unique either, right? So it's it's, it's a name that... it's got to be then, I would suggest, something else. And I think we're given some help when we consider the fact that I, I believe Paul is quoting Isaiah 45 here. So, Isaiah 45... This this is a chapter where, where the Lord is speaking and the name given is Lord. In other words, it is the it is the his covenant name, his the premier name of God. And so Isaiah chapter forty five, verses twenty two and twenty-three, I think we have it. He says this Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Now, do you think this is just a dink? Do you think Paul just stumbled upon a phrase from Isaiah? Or could one of the most brilliant Old Testament theologians in all of church history have known exactly what Isaiah 45 said. Of course he did. It could could be possible that he had the entirety of Isaiah memorized in the first place, all right? So he very clearly is alluding to this. And so what is he saying here? What is the name? I mean, the fact that he is going to... He's making this this pointed statement and then using the same language that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There will be an oath made. There will be a, a confession made. So here's what I think the name is. Not a name as in a legal name that would identify somebody like as a first name. Instead, I would argue this is a title. And I think what he is now saying is, now through this work of of Christ condescending, coming down, digressing, incarnating, being crucified, being resurrected, being ascended, now he's been exalted, not only to a position that is unique and stands alone, but he also now is identified as Lord. Lord. The fullness of divinity. Fully God. Now, I know, I know he was that in his, in his humanity, but, but now, as a result of all this, so here's another way to think about this. Yes, there was a time when he did not grasp onto the rights and privileges he had of being divine. But guess what he's done? He's re-grabbed onto them. And he'll never give them up again. Jesus Christ will never, ever condescend again. Not like that. That didn't mean He won't come down. He will come down, but He will come down in all of His glory. There will be no doubt when He comes down. Everybody will know. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. And the name that they will confess is the Lordship of Christ. Now, this would not have been lost on people in Philippi living in a Roman province. Because every year, do you know what they had to do? They had to sign off on a statement, Caesar is Lord. So this, this is all intentional. This, by the way, is what gets the Christians in hot water with the Romans. Up to this kind of stuff, I think the Romans just kind of viewed Christians as like this sect or cult of Judaism. I, I don't think they really cared about what they viewed to be an internal, you know, religious, cultural, indigenous kind of conflict until... One, Gentiles are getting saved, and two, both Jew and Gentile are no longer confessing the lordship of Caesar. It is a name bestowed upon one, and that is Jesus. And so they would then give the confession, Jesus is Lord. Church history in those early years are replete with examples of men and women facing down, being burned to death, being fed to lions, being asked to recant the Lordship of Christ. And there are historical examples of people's last words being, Jesus is Lord. And this is what the Romans didn't understand. And it's what the Jews couldn't believe, that there would be these who would give that ultimate price to make that kind of a confession. So we have an exalted position. We have a preeminent name. Let me give you one last one. We've already alluded to it, but let's make it then emphatic. As we conclude this morning, it's the last time you're going to hear me preach this year, all right? It won't be until next year you're going to hear me preach. Unless you go online. You could listen to me all every day if you wanted. All right. So then, notice how this is described again. So what's going to happen? The name that is above every name. Then he says this. So verse ten says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. I I, I don't think we have to you know kind of get, get all technical on what this what this means. In other words, I think it kind of lays out fairly clearly. You know, he says, those who are in heaven, meaning the, those in the heavenly realm, those on earth, those who are on the earth, and those under the earth, I think is a reference to the dead. So what are all three of these phrases identifying? Every single created part of the universe ever. That, that's, how it's, that's a way of summing it up. Every single created part Angels, people, people alive, people dead, demons—it doesn't matter. Every knee will bow, and the language of the bowing of the knee is, crosses all cultural boundaries. Right? We all know what that means—that's submission. To bow, to bow the knee, to lower oneself to another—is to be—is be, it almost a universal expression of subservience? Right. Of, of, of recognizing the better of another. So, so to bow the knee, I mean, that, that, that is a way of, of ultimate submission. But it doesn't stop there. It also says that not only every knee bow, but every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is speaking then of the universal lordship of Christ. And it's a profound statement. Now, here's the thing that I think is so helpful about this passage. It's important to keep this in mind, these verses in particular. Is Jesus Lord right now? Yes. Is everyone living in submission to the Lordship of Christ right now? No. So part of his words here, this is what is so amazing. I mean, these verses are like a summation of the entirety of God's work of the gospel in the Bible. All right? the The essence of it all, because this points us to the future. Paul Paul is saying he's been given this position. He's been highly exalted. He possesses the name. Listen, the, the truth is whether or not people in the world today actually confess his lordship has no bearing on the essence of his lordship. He's Lord whether they admit it or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think. This is not up for debate. This is not a matter of dialogue. This is not people coming together to try and decide what this is. No, Jesus is Lord. And what Paul means is the day is coming when every single part of the created order, heaven, earth, past, present, all of humanity, all of the heavenly realm, all who would be counted as part of that which God made, every single thing... Will bow in the fullness of submission to the Lordship of Christ. Everybody, everything, no one's left out of this. This will be universal. And it's going to happen in two ways. When that day comes, there will be those of us who've already bowed the knee, there'll be those of us who have, who already enjoy the weight of the gospel of god's grace upon us to bow the knee it to bow the knee is not a burden to bow the knee is not some kind of hardship it is something we do as an act of adoration and submission to the Lordship of Christ. We do it willingly. We confess Christ as Lord. There are those on that day who will bow the knee because they've already bowed the knee. They will, they will surrender to the fullness of the Lordship of Christ when He makes Himself known in all of His glory because we've already submitted to it. And the Bible says then we will be ushered into our forever reward. But there are others. There are those who live their lives in rebellion against God and Christ and the Word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that day comes, rather than bowing under the burden of God's grace, will bow under the burden of God's judgment and wrath and will confess. Through gritted teeth, the lordship of Christ and will be ushered into their forever punishment. But make no mistake, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. No matter where they may reside now, the truth is all will submit to the Lordship of Christ. And so church, I think this passage then should encourage us and it should exhort us. It should encourage us because we know, we have hope of the day that is to come. Jesus is ruling and reigning, but not in the fullness of what that means, not in the completeness of what that will be. The plan has not yet been fulfilled, but the day is coming when that plan will be fulfilled, and He will reign in fullness. And all of those who now use the name of Jesus as nothing more than a cuss word or a frustration or some other kind of slight against God, they will one day utter that name, and it will be done in full reverence and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, listen, church, I know we get frustrated by what we see. I do. I know we get burdened by what we see in this world, but every time you hear some progressive judge, every time you hear some liberal school board member every time you watch Nancy Pelosi talk you rest assured she will say Jesus Christ is Lord one day one day they'll all submit all of them will submit be encouraged by that draw strength and hope and knowing that his day is coming but we should also be exhorted because for every amen that we utter, when the pastor gets riled up like that, let me ask you, how often do you live in submission to the Lordship of Christ? I mean, that's a little tougher. It's tougher for the pastor. I mean, the, the truth is, this is how we should be living in submission to His Lordship. We can treat it so lightly. And this passage reminds us that is the way in which we serve Him. He is Lord. Do we submit to Him as Lord? Of course, I'd make an appeal here to anybody who does not know Christ. The good news is, is that day has not yet come. It is coming, but it's not yet arrived. If you have never trusted in Christ as Savior, if you've never confessed that you are a sinner, that believed Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, if you've not asked God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done, then I implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved can know Christ as Savior. When our service is over, I'll be right down front, I'd love an opportunity to tell you more about what it means to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to God's people, are you living in submission to Him? Are you living as people who are under His Lordship? I think it's a good word to think about then as we close out the year. We think about a new year to come. Are we a people who truly do bow the knee and confess with the tongue the Lordship of our Savior. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we will then sing about the glories of the cross of our Savior. Father God, we do thank You for the gathering of Your people. We're grateful for this season. We're grateful for the profound realities of this passage, reminded about the full humanity, the full divinity of our Savior, one who did not cling to rights and privileges He deserved, but instead gave those up so that He might take on flesh, becoming a slave, dying on the cross. And we thank You, God, that that is not the end of the story, that we do not leave Jesus in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, but He rose from the dead. He has been exalted to that place of preeminence and power and glory. So may we as Your people serve in such a way that reflects that position of Christ in our lives, so that as others see us, they see those living in submission to His Lordship, So God, we trust our lives to you. Bring your word to bear on us by your spirit, continuing to use it to form and fashion us that we might bring you glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.